Rosie. Should we go for a walk? Hey, where are you going? Don't go in Mum's room. Let's go for a walk, Dopey. It's nice out there. Let's go and we're going to call Miles Jupp. Rosie? She's just wandering over to the... Ah, oh, she's just climbed onto the comfy chair. What's the deal? Come on, Rosie. Let's go. Walking. Miles Jupp. Come on. Ah, oh, well, I'm going. You don't want to go? Right. Nope. Last chance. Lovely day. Walk. Miles Jupp. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening I took my microphone and found some human folk Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan How are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here, reporting to you, minus Rosie, the dog, who, it turns out, went on a run with my wife this morning and has evidently decided that's enough outdoor time for her. As for me, I'm reporting to you from the usual Norfolk farm track at the beginning of November 2020. The American presidential election took place yesterday as I speak and so far no clear winner has emerged. Donald Trump is calling fraud. Here in the UK a second national lockdown begins tomorrow. So in the spirit of trying to provide some distraction from all of that and whatever else you might enjoy a bit of distraction from I am going to try and put out a few more podcast episodes than I normally would. I've said this in the past and then failed to do that because I end up just uh, running out of time, but I'm going to do my best. Anyway, in order to do that, I've been looking back through all my old hard drives and checking on various conversations that I've recorded, which have remained unedited and unbroadcast. And if you're a regular podcat, you'll know that I sometimes put out episodes quite a long time after I record them. And it's kind of a random thing. It's usually not because it wasn't a good episode. It's usually something else. Or just bad organisation. That's what it usually comes down to. I don't know why I'm talking in this voice. That's my bad organisation voice. Anyway, today we are listening to one such conversation with British actor, comedian, television presenter, writer, Miles Jupp. And I thought it would be a good idea just to give Miles a courtesy call just to say, well, look, we're putting the episode out and uh, sorry it took a, a while, but I'm going to go indoors and do this call because it's a bit too David Blowy out here. So let's go and call Miles. Hello. Hello, is that Miles? Hi, yes, how's it going? Good man. I'm recording now, so try and, try and keep all the really offensive stuff to a minimum. I will gosh. Okay, yeah, I'll keep a lid on it. <laughs> um, it's very I'm outside, it's very rainy and windy. Can you hear that? 
No, it sounds okay, actually. I had to come indoors because it's very windy out here. It was a bit too blowy. So, well, you've got no hills or anything, have you? Uh, no, we've got a few hills around here. That's very oh, yeah. that's very uh, hillist of you to... Anglist. Anglist or yeah, something. Immediately yeah. assume everything's flat just because we're in Norfolk. We got some great hills, Miles, but where are you? I mean, I've just climbed a hill called the Kimmin, which is in Monmouthshire, where I live. Uh, we've just stopped and uh, put our warm jumpers on because it's pretty foul up here. It's good for the soul. You'll get back and you'll feel all virtuous. You can have a nice cup of tea or That's right. whiskey or whatever it is and, and then get on with the rest of your day. And incrementally, we're improving the quality of our buttock muscles. If that's not part of the dream, I don't know what the point is in playing the game, really. You're living your best life. <laughs> I'm living a life. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's the day after half term. If you had half term, so suddenly we're alone in the house. And... Yeah. Oh, I'm going to stick my neck out and I'm going to say I hate half term. It's a load <laughs> of shit. <laughs> and I, it, yeah, it goes on for two weeks now. Well, ours, yeah, ours was ten days. I think it was an inset day. I don't know. I didn't mind it. I had one day of work. I did a day's filming and something, and I did a. Have I got news for you? So in the middle of the week, I had a little, a little sort of break. But I, I, I enjoyed it actually. Yeah, I'm just watched being, a lot of films. I'm being cynical. I, I, we had a couple of great days. We went to go ape and climbed around oh, in the trees, and it was actually pretty. When everyone's when everyone's tall enough for go ape, then it's that's an expensive but brilliant day, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was wonderful. Anyway, listen, man. I wanted to call you personally because I'm embarrassed that the conversation we recorded has taken so long to surface. I think it might be a record. We spoke in 2017 in September. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think that's reasonable. Presumably you've put out all the more interesting ones. (laughs) And this is just slowly, I'm not, you know, I don't want to use words like barrel and scraping or whatever, but presumably, I mean, we had that chat because I think... Genuinely, I think what happened is my agent, Molly, is such an enormous fan of your podcast and she was incensed that I hadn't been on it. So I think your hand was forced. I think she went all hot shot and, you know, used all her leverage and just made it happen. And you just had to succumb to the kind of fury and the and the anger. And so that's why it happened. But then once you've done it, you probably thought, well, what would I do that for? Not at all. It was very nice to listen back to it. I think part of the reason that it took a while to edit was that there were some technical problems and half of it didn't actually record. The rest of it I recorded at way too low a level. I either talk extremely quietly or laugh very loudly. So yeah. I call, I'm, I'm a level issue. It's very hard to set your, set your dials for that sort of binary behaviour. Uh, I do remember I've been watching a cricket match that day and I think Theresa May had come and sat on the bench near where I was sitting. That's right. This, I think this would have been when she was Prime Minister, is that? Yes. I, I don't pay the same level of attention to the news as I used to. But she, and I, I remember being slightly paranoid because at the time I was hosting the news quiz and so she would be one of many people about whom one was unthinkingly rude um, just to sort of get a job done, I suppose. Uh, Yes, we talked about Theresa May and being rude to politicians. We talked about your... We definitely talked about Guy Ritchie. Yeah, we talked about Guy Ritchie and the fact that you had 
been in Sherlock Holmes, or at least you filmed a scene for his version of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I tried Holmes. to be in it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've spent more time talking about this experience than living it. I suppose that's the same with people that have won World Cups and stuff, isn't it? But, right. um, I, yeah, that's right. There was a sort of unsuccessful day. Although at the time, I was very grateful for the day, to be perfectly honest. Sure. And you were also in the process of writing a novel. Oh, well, that's... Well, I, I've now submitted that. That's, goodness me, it's so late. It was definitely meant to be handed in over two Christmases ago, and we're nearly at another Christmas, I suppose. They sort of took it off the slate because I wasn't moving very fast. But lockdown, I ran out of excuses, so I have now submitted that novel. Yeah, it's about a kind of um, disillusioned teacher yeah. in the late 90s. Speaking of the 90s, we also exchanged stories about encounters with our 90s musical heroes... Uh, it seems I can't, I can't, not only can I not remember the recording, I can't remember my actual life. <laughs> one, one of those should have left some sort of traces, shouldn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we won't set up the conversation too much more. It's very uh, enjoyable, easygoing chat. All right, man, listen, I'm going to let you go, but thank you very, very much, nice Miles. Very nice to speak to you, Adam. Yeah, I'm a big admirer of your, of your podcast. Oh, and thanks, Oofra. Wider Oofra. See you again soon, somewhere, yeah. I hope. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. See you, bye. There we are, that was Miles Jupp talking to me from a hill in Monmouthshire. And now we're going to listen to our conversation recorded in September 2017. So this has ended up being an unusually long and elaborate setup for, you know, just another rambly conversation. But I enjoyed listening back to it and I hope you do too. Here we go with Miles Jupp. <laughs> What have you got? Dried mango. It's a bit like eating skin, though, isn't it? Yeah. Mangoey skin. Yeah, sweet yeah. skin. That's what I like about it. Sweet, sweet skin. The mango taste I can take or leave. The skin the, of uh, someone who's been moisturising with mango. Yeah. <laughs> and I put out some cashews and raisins oh, for you. Yeah, this is very kind. What do you think? Have you been, have you been sent instructions that I... Well... And I've got nice. hobnobs as well. Continually. Well, I actually I avoid certain foods these days, but um, mm. I'm gonna, you'll see me picking the raisins out and not touching the cashews. What's wrong with cashews? Are you nut intolerant? Food, no, I had a food intolerance test. Which Did you? you? Think sounds very wanky. Mm. And cashews were a kind of ooh, hazelnuts were a do not have. What's wrong with the hazelnuts? Well, they just make me a bit sluggish. Mm. What I do is I don't do anything and I carry on, but I just worry yeah. more. Okay. Because I've been burned so many times. By, by adapting a new lifestyle? Well, by worrying about eggs. For me, it always comes back to the, the time when I thought, oh, I love eggs, but now I can't have eggs. Because if you have more than two eggs a week, you're going to just drop dead. Oh, this is massive sort of Edwina Curry egg. coronary. No, no, no. It, nothing to do with um, more than two eggs egg a week diseases. Yeah, Don't you? Because sounds... you're, you're about 10 years younger than I am, I think. 38, yeah. Right. 38. So, so you don't remember that period where they just said... Eggs will send your cholesterol right through the roof. No, no, no. Yeah. 
But I do remember earlier, I do remember lots of name Edwina Curry saying... Go to work on whole, an egg. The whole food chain. That was... <laughs> no, that, who was that? That was... Salman Rushdie. Salmon, is that his work? Yeah. I thought it was um, uh, uh, Faye... Oh, you're right. Faye Weldon. You're right. Faye Weldon. I think Salmon Rushdie might have... Did he work for Maxwell House or something like that? He coined some famous... One of my brother's best friends, his mum, she had had coined the phrase, is your house a Maxwell House? Um, I must have had a Friday picture on my wall. Are you emailing? No, I'm looking up the line that Salmon Rushdie did. How how are you with Googling things to solve a... Uh, like, do, do you generally resist Googling something? No, no, I do it all the time. Yeah. I was t- Jeremy Hardy came to stay in my house this week. He was doing a gig near me, and we were talking about something, the play he'd been to see, and I thought, oh, I want... He, you know, I'd asked him a question, he couldn't remember, and so I went to Google it, and he's like, sorry, am I interrupting you? Is there something you... And I was like, oh, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about a play, and I want to find out who's in it. And he's like, oh, right. And it happens like, two or three times. He was I like, think- he's clearly obviously someone that doesn't doesn't do that so yeah it does seem really rude or whatever but i think if it's a conversation i think you have to assume that the person is googling to support the uh conversation yeah the forward movement of the conversation because if they weren't that would be so crazily rude to just start doing something like yeah to just start sending an email but that's the problem if you're holding a hand in an email arise or whatever and it could be something that you've been waiting for for weeks or whatever it's hard to judge it isn't it <laughs> Excuse me, I have to take this. Yeah, it's a nice phrase. I'm sorry, so sorry, I have to take this. I'm re- this looks like a very exciting email, so I'm just going to stop talking um, to you. Yeah, and when I just, it could be good news. So when I come back, I may actually be be much better company. Um, <laughs> so right. why don't you take that risk? Of course, on the other on the other hand, it could be crushing news. Yeah, good yeah. news. I've got a great new job. It looks as if the early stages of phasing you out of my life may have finally arrived. <laughs> uh, we be... are moving west. Uh, it's all finally happened, and. Uh, I've been invited to Salman Rushdie's party. I once. He pops up as a recurring character for, for you, doesn't he, Rushdie? In In and Out, yeah, him, Yentob, people that kind of. <laughs> I found what Salman Rushdie wrote Fresh cream cakes, naughty but nice. That's Rushdie. Wow. Yes. Naughty but nice. Naughty he can't have but come nice. up with naughty but nice as a. Yes, he did. He came up with the, the actual wording, naughty but nice. I think, I mean, that's the implication. He spliced it onto a. I started to think about cream cake. Do you think you think it's a sort of pre-existing phrase that he applied to the cakes? Uh, it might have been, or maybe at his work. Is there, a, yeah, I, is there a sort of another layer of Google where you another layer where of you cakes. can say this isn't enough? Just can you Google the words more detail uh, after on these questions? Yeah. Did Salman Rushdie really? Coin the phrase the naughty but really nice. Coin the phrase, that's right. Naughty but nice. Coin yeah. the phrase. Or what about this? Who coined the phrase naughty but nice? Oh, that's a good idea. Take Rushdie out of it completely. And just see if it comes back to him. Yeah. A little known advertising copywriter by the name of S. Rushdie. You might come up with. Phrase. Does a fatwa have um, a time limit to it? <laughs> Does it expire? Do you just relax after a while? Because there was a time. And I bought his book about it called Is it called Joseph Anton? And I've not read it. It's still sort of sitting there. He just sort of stopped being in hiding, didn't he? Yeah, that's a good point. Is there a kind of? Do the security services say they've gone now? This other, they're annoyed about other stuff. Well, it's a bit like they've kind of broken up themselves as a group. Really, they're yeah. all they're all they're all doing. They're all pursuing solo projects. They're under new management. Trust me, it's a very exciting time for those guys. But at the same time, they they can only sort of focus so much effort. Yeah. 
everyone was really up for the fatwa, very excited about it. Everyone was totally behind it. But um, we've got a new regional manager, um, Ian, who's just come in. And he's just reassessed our strengths, really. It's not, it's not something you should blame yourself for, Sam. You're still list. highly offensive. You Everyone's are. still <laughs> absolutely furious. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, and personally, and I'm not even of that faith, it should be pulped. But, you you know, it's, you can't blame yourself for the breakdown of these guys. There's so much else going on, you know. Uh, we've got the internet to worry about now, which we didn't have when the Satanic Verses came out. And it's all... hotter everywhere yeah. all the time. <laughs> that puts a lot of pressure on us all. Best Bite. We, there's such Can't a get lot much to... done in the afternoons. There's such a lot to Google. Okay, here we go, look. Don't, yeah. I think what can we Google could be a, could, that could be a, a sort of podcast in podcast. its own right. It probably it? is already. This was the decade of Heineken's refreshes the parts that other beers cannot reach. Martinis, anytime, place, anywhere. And naughty but nice, the slogan for cream cakes coined by author Salman Rushdie. Okay, very good. I think that's... I According think that's to the BBC. Definitive. Were the other ones, were they, all, were they all written by sort of future aspiring novelists? Uh, I mean, Faye Weldon... Did, did Donna Tart write, once you pop, you just can't stop? Is <laughs> <laughs> it that sort of... <laughs> just keep digging, you'll be amazed who's in there. Martin Amis. <laughs> you don't get quicker than a quick fit. <laughs> incredible, incredible what these people have been up to. Margaret Atwood. They're great. Oh, Margaret, that's a bit of a sloppy one. That's a bit of a sloppy one. <laughs> I try. I can't think of any slogans now. <laughs> They're all yeah. More than meets the eye. That was the Transformers. What slogan. are what, like? What are some good recent ones? Um, well, I, th- I was talking to someone about this recently, and they were saying, "Oh, it's just." You know, an advertising company's come up with a slogan, but the slogan is then attached to a rhythm that the very first person that's done the voiceover has done. Yeah. So they've said, well, Tesco, every little helps. That's the slogan. But an actor somewhere has gone, Tesco, every little helps, or whatever. And that's that's as much as the rhythm is as much as part of the slogan Mm. as the wording itself. So there's a sort of dual... But then if someone else then goes and does a Tesco advert, they're still sort of copying that person's original... But you can't um, you can't trademark rhythms, can you? You can't, but you should be able to. I think I've spoken about this before. Three, but four. Oh, that's one of ours. I mean, you can't you can't yeah. get deep. So that was my. Uh, there was an alert there from um, Google saying, "I've googled how long a fatwa lasts." I yeah. heard what you were saying. I mean, that's the way it's going to go, isn't it? Give yeah, it a yeah. couple of years. I was listening to your conversation. You wanted to know how long a fatwa lasts. I have looked it up. What are you planning? <laughs> How offensive are you planning on being? You seem sad. <laughs> you are forgetting a lot of things. How are you doing? What have you been up to today? I've been at the cricket. Oh, I've yeah. Watching, um... Do you love cricket? Hmm. I used to really love it. And now, I don't know if it's just age or whatever, I don't get... I don't mind. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I used to mind. I used to like hate England losing and stuff. And now I, I think that's fine. And I would know when they were playing. I don't really know when they're playing. But I just got invited to... a thing at the Oval that I didn't realise it would be quite smart I, but it was in the the committee room in the pavilion and it said wear a tie so I wore a tie and then I got there and it was all everyone else was in sort of proper suits and there was ex-players and then uh, Theresa May then arrived and sat I was sitting outside talking to a policeman who's a sort of terrorism prevention guy who was really good fun and then uh, Theresa May came and sort of sat down to places along us and I sort of thought I felt very slightly strange about that I suppose because you think you don't feel off guard then, do you know what I mean? She, she, do you think she she's knew... She's also someone that I met. Oh. Who you were? Do you think she ever listens to the news, news quiz? quiz? I, don't, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought from a sort of policy 
point of view they take any interest <laughs> take much notice but yeah I, I have no idea i met boris johnson about three days after the referendum result yeah i was walking down tottenham court road with a friend and there was a slight kerfuffle next to us on the traffic island that's a very boris word i suppose but sort of, and and it was boris johnson was there i just thought you've got real chutzpah because people are not pleased with you now and if you're not aware of that then you are i don't even know what spectrum you'd have to be on and here you are just going straight through the Sort of town, and we just sort of went up to my friend. I was with went up and said something sort of oleaginous to him, uh, and he just said, "Oh, this is my friend Miles." And I said, "Yeah, you're keeping us all very busy at the moment." And he went, "Oh God!" And then sort of go back on his bike. But I don't know if he was just sort of being sort of vaguely polite or, or, or whatever. But you, you know, you make remarks about people for no good reason, really. They're in, I suppose, they're in the news, or they've done something well, or they've done something badly. You don't really know these people, and you're just assessing these things from a comedy point of view, thinking that is a, that's a good joke. It happens to be about that person. Well, it's strange. It must be odd when you when you bump into people. The, the stories I keep hearing from comedians especially is that on the occasions that they are in the same room with a, particularly Tory politicians, yeah. they're often beguiled or they're surprised by how sort of charming yeah. they are. Uh, and they don't expect it. You know, I think I remember Mark Steele talking about being getting very upset on question time with uh, one of the Tory panellists on there. And then afterwards in the green room being sort of patted on the back by the guy while he was still shaking with rage and indignation. And the guy was just like, oh, that was, oh you were very good in there. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was all just a jolly jape. And how disarming that is. I yeah. But, you know, people say about Theresa May that she's a nice person. Yeah. And she's not that at all... That doesn't seem implausible. No, she's not She's not at all the, the on robot. A one, on a one-to-one basis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so... She's unfortunately one of those people that it's very easy to characterise as... She, I mean, she looks... It's sad, but you shouldn't judge people on their looks. But with her, it's so hard to resist because she looks as if she could have been drawn by... What's his name? He does the illustrations for uh, Roald Dahl books. Oh, um, I was going to say Joel Scarf. Uh, Roald yeah, yeah, Scarf. Quentin Blake. Qu- yeah, she yeah. looks as if she could have been drawn by Quentin Blake. Obviously, the way people behave one to one is different from how they behave, you know, or or think about sort of things in their jobs. ideologically. But I do find that thing where you hear things about people that maybe that you're about to work with, and I I think you've got to make your own mind up about people. Yeah. I mean, you really. Sometimes, you know, I remember there was someone I was about to work with and a friend said, oh, yeah, no, he's quite difficult. And then I started doing this thing and um, I realised, you know, he's a perfectionist and also he just sort of speaks bluntly and he's just sort of quite practical and doesn't mm-hmm. mind getting on with things. And I, that's... Sometimes I always think this about producers. If you're mentioning a name with somebody in connection with someone, they go, oh, no, well, I think, no, they're... No, I think they're, I don't, you know, they're very good at acting or so forth, but I think they're, they're a little bit difficult. I, I now always assume the worst, which is that the person that they're describing as difficult has once pointed out that they are full of fucking shit. Yeah. And uh, so that's what they mean by difficult. <laughs> You're like, he's very difficult when he means, no, that person calls you on your bullshit. Yeah. And we, we cannot use people I don't like really want to work with that I guy can't again. really be, yeah, it was, he, I wasn't really doing my job properly. Yeah. And he, and this is what I find so rude, uh, pointed it out. Pointed it out pointed and it objected out. to uh, it. At the very moment when I was sort of trying to lump blame on somebody, somebody much junior to me and i think that's really that's you know he won't go anywhere are you sanguine about the future uh, are you a catastrophist a warrior 
Um, You've got children, right? I do have children. I I can't really worry about things that are sort of totally unknown, I suppose. I do things that are so sort of unimportant. I can't really imagine what it's like to be in a situation where you do things that genuinely make some sort of difference. But I know those people are out there that can take care of stuff. And I kind of have a sort of... Uh, just a trust in these people. I don't know where it comes from. Things just get sorted by these sort of, I don't know, sort of shady people that we don't know much about. I was talking at this cricket thing. I was just at this uh, terrorism prevention police officer, and he was like saying, "Oh man, those guys in MI5, they are unbelievable. They're just stopping everyone all the time." Like, although I am a sort of can be a bit of a fretter and a worrier sometimes, a bit of a pacer sometimes. The worrying is just getting to the point where the thing's happening. It's not how it goes. You're just you're going to be relieved when something's over, however it's gone, kind of thing. So I don't. Although at the moment everything seems so ridiculously uncertain, I don't know when this will all be edited together. But I suppose what this week you've got North Korea saying, look, as far as we're concerned, the guy's declared war on us and stuff, and he's saying, well, you know, if we do, we can destroy you or whatever. That's that's crazy and yet sometimes you just wander about and you think well you know there's still a little queue at the butchers and um, you know the cash machine's still working at the end of the street and you know can put petrol in the car or whatever you know life sort of has this sort of habit of going on while other stuff's happening and in a way you, if you feel a little bit of disconnect it does enable you to sort of not worry about these things but maybe I'm being terrifically complacent but there's something that makes me think things will be okay mm. Do you, are you worried? I mean, I'm a worrier. And here we are in your bunker. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of fear. <laughs> I am a worrier, but I worry that I'm, you know, whenever I don't worry, I worry that I should be worrying. Yeah. And I worry that I'm uh, one of the people that's not doing something about it. Yeah. And I should be. Like... Don't you feel that everything does have an effect? You sort of said, well, the people making the decisions are sort of out there. They're the experts wandering around in underground bunkers or whatever. And that's true to a certain degree. But then on a societal level, there are yeah. all kinds of revolutionary changes afoot. Well, that's what it feels like. If I'm in an airport and there's smoke coming out of a bin, I'm not just going to... Yeah. Oh, yeah, again. sure. One of these people that you never see will deal with that or whatever. I'm ho yeah. One would hope that one would... Um, but I mean, things like um, to talk about what we were speaking about before, the whole business of uh, what happens when you come up against the real people that you speak about in a comedic way, for yeah. example. And the the fact that these people are real and not just kind of two dimensional cartoonish yeah. personifications of evil, which which sometimes they have to be for comedic purposes to make a joke pop. Mm you can't really go into the possibility that actually person X might not be just a, a, a total bastard. Yeah. Maybe there's more to them and we might not agree with this policy, but actually, you know, because that's what politics is like in real life. Like most people, even if they're a member of the Labour Party, they may not agree with absolutely every aspect of Labour Party policy at that point. Well, you know no, I mean? no, they won't. I mean, I, I suppose if you're going to mock someone's background... That's that's not really fair. That's that's something over which people have no 
control whatever they are if their background is their sort of eaten educated or whatever or their background is you know they're the children of criminals or you know whatever it is that that's you can't really call people on that but you your people's politics is absolutely fair game of course their background may inform those politics but also people got to trust people to make their own minds up about things as grown-ups so i kind of think if it's people you know there's a good my local mp i've met a couple of times he seems when you meet him to be a sort of fairly normal man i've spoke to him on the train once of when he was you know a bit sort of flustered because one of his family hadn't been well and he hadn't sort of slept and stuff and you think oh he's a you know a real he's this guy's a human actually he's a and then like you know you google his voting record and you think he's a complete animal like this man is appalling what this man thinks about things so you you know there's that sort of personal thing and it's and it's that side of them that you're if you are going to make jokes or attack them so it's that side of them that attacks them Yes, the, but the, the decisions you... that they have rationally made that you think are fundamentally mm. wrong is is I is I think sort of fair game. The other thing is, of course, you can have you know like friends that you have that you don't have the same politics with. People's political opinions seem to be as passionate as like the most passionate stand-up comedians' opinions. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Theresa May's just a fucking evil harridan, uh. <laughs> um, and that's it. She's evil, right? She's she she's malicious. She doesn't have people's best interests at heart. She's entirely motivated by greed and uh, other things that you could say that the Tories are characterised by. And it's that simple. And so then a lot of other people seem to adopt those kinds of political passions. And I feel like there's a link between the, the, the story about Laura Koonsberg, the BBC political correspondent, having to have a, uh, a bodyguard at the Labour yeah. Party conference. Is that, I mean, is that a real story? Is that... That's a real thing, and that's that's to do with. I don't know what's happened to sort of nuance in a way. Everything's become very binary. I don't know if it's because people are reduced to just you know using shorter messages and you know, like George Bush saying you're with us or you're against us or whatever. Just a completely sort of nuance-free phrase that has sort of massive cut through, as they say in media world. All of this is more, you know. People, not every question is a leading question. There's, mm. well, there are good things and bad things about such and such, you know, that, but there isn't sort of space for that now. And the problem that someone like an institution like the BBC gets caught up in, I think, is this, um, is this what I think or is this what someone think, thinks in a book I just read? <laughs> the, the clash between impartiality and balance, right? Now, impartiality and balance are not the same thing at all but they're sort of used in the in the same way so for instance um you know look, we have a sort of uh, someone on for extremely left-wing person who represents what you know millions of people think or, oh that's not balanced just to have them on we've got to get this sort of you know i don't know the guy from the christian voice who has like membership of 30 or whatever that's not balance you know at all and they're like well no we've got to be impartial about these things and an umpire or a referee they are impartial they make a decision based on what they've seen in front of them. And so journalists who set out to be objective will, you know, they've got to make a call some way. Did you enjoy that speech? I didn't. It wasn't a good speech. He didn't, it didn't really have any sort of say anything that sort of spoke to the people in the hall or, or whatever. And so Koonsberg gets a lot of grief for uh, a sort of presumed very anti-Corbyn sentiment. And the news, Chris, sometimes, you know, you make a joke about Corbyn and then, 
get lots of complaints and people saying, oh, you must be a Tory, remember the Tory party or whatever. And then you get lots of complaints saying this programme is just unbelievably left-wing, what the hell's going on here? I think bias is... Bias is things that people, like an accusation, people sling around all the time. And I think that comes from people uh, saying they're from a neutral point who aren't. I know people, that, I mean, you go online and and uh, obviously there's a feeding frenzy when it comes to BBC bias. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get in, like, I don't do, I have no sort of social media thing. I don't get involved in on conversations online or whatever. And I find that, that world, to be honest, quite sort of frightening that you could be, you know, Twitter to me seems to be, you know, you're just basically you're opening up a window saying you're now allowed to shout at me through this about whatever you like or yeah i think getting huge amounts of criticism or praise are equally damaging yeah it's not helpful i don't think it's good good for anyone a couple of um comments i came across oh i was watching a video of frankie boyle on it was a russian uh sort of news chat show oh yeah um with some strange presenter Mm. Um, called yeah. Maximilian or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And anyway, um, beneath that, I just started In looking. Fact, was at it some... on Russia Today? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I watched that. I think on. And they were talking about bias, and then I looked at some of the comments underneath. I mean, admittedly, this is YouTube, but Internet Champ says the BBC is now just a mouthpiece for the Tory Party. Sadly, we fund it just like our taxes pay for the weapons which are sold to Saudi Arabia, who supply ISIS. And then someone else, Edward 6000, says, Boyle, Russell Brand, Joe Brand, Mark Steele, Jeremy Hardy, Eddie Izzard, Herring, Toxvig, O'Brien, Ince, Norton, Linehan, Lee, Brigstock, Thomas, etc., 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 etc. The Bilderberg Broadcasting Corporation <laughs> is pro-mass immigration, pro-EU, and it is ultra-left-wing. And do you so, think the Bilderberg Group is pro-mass immigration? Do you think that's what they? <laughs> do you think that's one of the conclusions that they've come to? Absolutely yes, I've got fabulous, no idea what the Bilderberg Group actually do. As far as I like can a tell, sort of global they, masons, I guess. Yeah, they just—it's networking, and they—they they say, you know, how would you like to run this large corporation yeah. out in Saudi? Well, Arabia? things like the Halliburton Group and stuff. I, I did a pantomime in um, Aberdeen in two thousand and five playing the role of Simple Simon. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was to do the song sheet bit with the with the dame, my friend um, Alan McHugh. And so you'd, you'd, you'd get everyone singing a song together and you'd maybe get some people up and ask them some silly questions. But you'd also have the shout-outs to do. But because it was Aberdeen's a sort of an oil city, you'd have sort of, I don't know, corporate bookings in the midst of all these things. So you'd be saying, you know, the um, 6th Brigade, Peterhead... Um, Peter's head boy scouts are in hello to them hey whatever <laughs> and uh you know and uh janice is here with her grandchildren today she's 84 today ladies and gentlemen she's 84 today uh, and we also have uh, 12 members of the Halliburton group here today <laughs> or a big shout out to total uk the uh, french oil <laughs> hello to big farmer yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> they've taken yeah, the whole yeah, of the yeah. back row that's right. The people that the constant gardener were about, they're in. Uh, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. It was yeah. really, really very strange. Wow. Is that fun, doing that kind of show? I actually really loved it. And you've done other theatre since then, like so-called serious theatre. Yeah, I did um, I did an Alan Bennett play at the National called People. Um, and I did... No, well, I've had some things I really... Some of them have been just really 
enjoyable things to do. I did the first proper play I did was at the Northampton Royal Theatre. Selena Cadell directed. It was called Where the World um, Restoration Comedy, and it was. I just was so excited. I just had an amazing time. The people were glorious, and people were, you know, coming up to me and saying, "You know, I know this is your first play, and I it's terrific that you're enjoying it this much." But I just thought I ought to tell you that you, ju- you do need to know that it's not always like this okay that, <laughs> this is unusually enjoyable <laughs> and i did a day in the death of joe egg when you're doing a play doesn't it make it impossible to do anything else yeah that's that's your focus if you're i suppose during rehearsal period you can maybe go off and do a gig in the evening but the actual run of it yeah that's that's what you're but aren't they quite doing. long the runs what are they usually like well the ones at the national you're you're in rep so you might be on three nights a week or four nights a week and you, you know these dates months in advance. Oh, right. When you're rehearsal, it's full on. But you could, you know, if another play comes in, they tech and stuff, you could be off stage for two weeks or something like that. We had Our play was really, the more recent one I did, was really physical and complicated. And we had three weeks off at one point and yeah. came back and had to sort of run it all in, a, in the afternoon to check that, you know, you're picking up 50 props an hour or whatever. And you think, God, I don't know if I can remember this anymore so that yeah when you're doing it it's sort of all it is ideally sort of all consuming i suppose have you, have you done, done no. a play or something like that would you would you fancy it yeah i would yeah yeah i think it'd be fun i used to love acting at school and you know i've done bits and pieces on tv and always enjoyed it i guess my range is not huge yeah well so. hey, i mean look who you're talking to uh, <laughs> you're um, with you're just with other people and that's, that's the exciting the thing. thing i really love i've ended up doing a lot of sort of solo work and yeah stuff where you know i'm hosting and stuff and then you're sort of in charge i really i really like being in a team to so me that's the, just the best well now we're both thing. country guys you're out in yeah i'm in monmouthshire so monmouthshire. i you know if i get now i want to i'd love to go and do a play in bath or bristol or something yeah, like that. yeah how is it out in monmouthshire it's in, yeah i'm having a nice time i mean i means things for instance like i, I wanted to do a play in london next year and i can't do that because i think i can't go away for four months solidly i just can't do that you know it's really not fair on the family you've got like 200 kids yeah five 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 kids i have so um you know that's a certain degree of responsibility yeah a massive degree of responsibility that comes that um but at the moment i'm doing you know a lot of writing and stuff like that Um, beautiful part of the world last time i was in monmouthshire I was visiting. This is a uh, this is a straightforward name drop brag mm-hmm. for indie music fans. I was visiting the band the Pixies or Pixies if you're yeah. a purist, because they were recording at Rockfield. Rockfield, yeah. yeah, Rockfield Studios, and I'm sort of friendly with Charles Thompson, who's the lead singer, Frank Black, mm-hmm. as he's also known. So I cycled out there on my Brompton from what is the nearest station? The nearest big rail station. Wow, Newport? I can't remember what it was. Abergavenny? Maybe it was Abergavenny. That's a journey. I mean, it was a good... I think it was, what, like 15 miles or something? Yeah, yeah. So it took me about an hour and a half to cycle it. On the A40? very... No, hilly. It took me oh, a very back, back way. And um, it was raining. It really rained. So I, by the time I got there, I was completely soaking. And Charles Thompson... Frank Black came out and, and met me and said, hey, come in. And it was the Pixies when they reformed. Are you a music fan? Are you like a yeah, Pixies like fan? Yeah. Anyway, so they'd reformed and they were recording a new album. So it was really exciting. And they'd reformed with the original lineup, including Kim Deal, who had um, previously been sort of on bad terms with the rest of the band, Charles especially. 
and we went in there and it was pretty cool and exciting because I'm a real muso yeah. and I knew that they'd recorded like Bohemian Rhapsody Bohemian was Rhapsody, yeah. there. there was a really good exhibition recently in the Museum and it was just lots of stuff that being you know lots of the music from the 90s from my period was all sort of recorded yeah there, what were the big know? albums from the 90s well like a Oasis did big big recordings of that's there right and, yeah know. I think I was sleeping in the room because it's a residential studio and I yeah. think I, I was imagining what uh, Liam Gallagher would have been doing but my brother's there. a big vinyl guy a big big muso and he um, my two sort of musical educators my brother Ed and then I used to share a flat with a guy Dougie Anderson uh, who's very um you know, Dougie Anderson does sort of fighting talk and these sorts of things. Uh-huh. He used to present Ryan. He's a glorious man. And he would, like, sit there and go, right, we're going to, you need to see uh, New York Doll or you need to see the Devil and Daniel Johnson stuff. So he watched loads of things. And then, oh, but my brother, we, you know, he'd come to Monmouth and he'd be like, yeah, well, that branch of Costa, can we go in there? And I'd be like, what? I don't really want to go to Costa. He goes, no, it's just because one of the Stranglers was sacked in there once and stuff like that. He just sort of knew all the little kind of um, Well, that's musical weird that you details. mentioned Costa in the high street, right? Yeah. Because that's where I ended up sitting with Charles Thompson one afternoon of the Pixies, right? So, so the first night that I get to the studio, he, uh, I don't see any of the other band. I'm trying to be cool because I'm aware that yeah. it's like they're back together. They've, they've had some difficulties internally, especially with Kim Deal and Charles. And, and I don't want to bring up anything that's going to be awkward. So I don't say anything. I just go and chat to Charles in his room. And he's playing me some of the stuff they've been working on, which to my ears sounds great. You know, they had this song, Indie Cindy, and uh, I really loved that album. And and the stuff he was playing, I was like, this is terrific, you know. And then the next day we met up for um, a coffee at Costa Coffee. Yeah. And we chatted a bit more about how it had all been going. And I asked after Kim cautiously. And he said, oh, yeah, she's left. And I was like, oh, right, well, she's just, you only needed her for a bit of the sessions. He's like, no, she left the band. And I was like, oh, no. So he told me about it, and, and he said, yeah, it happened here. They were sat in Costa Coffee, the whole of the Pixies. <laughs> it seemed so unlikely. Oh, in right. Maybe it's the Pixies he was talking about, not the Strangers. Maybe, maybe. It seems unlikely to be too mass-firing. I was going to say, yeah. But, um, Where are they from, anyway, the Stranglers? They're, they're... Stranglers are, I don't know, like uh, Watford or something. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. But... Yeah, so, so they broke up, or at least Kim announced that she was leaving at Costa in... Uh, On Monmouth High Street. Monmouth High, High Street. Street. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And she, because, you know, they, I think they'd all been really trying to, to get on and, and make it work. But well, um, group dynamics are kind of, you know, yeah. you, you just get a thing. Sometimes you know, I think you're working must... on something and you fall out with someone and you can't get... There's someone I worked with last year that I just couldn't get on with and it you just uh, it just you i've just never i can't shake it i you know if i bumped into them now i'd feel profoundly i saw them i saw them in a restaurant window i was and i just went oh and it, you know it was, it was like seeing a ghost or whatever once you know something's in your head it's it's kind of done and you can't be did your did down. your um relationship ever kind of peak did you did it explode at any point no it? no no it just tends just low to, level two tension. people that became incredibly well quite high on my part but um you know, people that you know just—I mean, just chemically. You know, some people don't get on. Really. Mm. I think of it as a great rock and roll thing. As a person of of my age, I was in um, uh, James Kettle, who I do a lot of writing with, who's head writer on the news quiz. We were in the Albany pub, which you probably know near Great Portland Street. Oh yeah, tube station, and we'd doing dinner news quiz recording, and um, this guy came up to our table, looked at us, and was about to speak, and they went, "No, no, 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 no," and walked off with it. Oh, 
And then about 10 minutes later, he came back. It was him again. He obviously had a few drinks. And um, he said, yeah, I, sorry, I just uh, just uh, thought I'd just want to say, you know, I like what you do. I'm, I'm called Miles as well. I was like, oh, right, well, it's nice to meet another Miles. So I sort of chatted a bit. And then he went, uh, I'm in the, the Wonder Stuff. And James said, oh, right, you're Miles Hunt. Oh, wow, you wrote. And then that reeled off loads of songs. And he yeah. was like, yeah, 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 I did. And we were like, oh, well, sit down. So we ended up drinking with him there until closing time and then went back. It's like, oh, we're staying around the corner at the Radisson. Come on. Or any other excellent local hotel, the yeah. Holiday Inn, the Melia White House. Uh, <laughs> come. And uh, so we ended up going back to, like, the bar. They'd been doing an evening, like a Lamac thing, I think. And um, ended up in their sort of suite in our hotel room. And he was, like... He was a very big news quiz fan, and he was just describe. He's a really nice guy as well, and uh, he was sort of describing his sort of Saturday afternoon ritual of listening to the news quiz in the bath in where he lives and stuff. The big windows open, lots of sort of steam and whatever. Very vivid picture. And about um, you know, it's really late, and I was doing radio play the next day, and really needed to sort of get going. And um, about quarter to three, James was like, look, I mean, you've been very nicely saying that you like our work and stuff, and we really like your work. Do you think, I mean, would you mind, like, you know, doing a song for us? Whoa, good one. He came out with he, it. Like, he actually said, and, uh, like, uh, someone else was, was going, oh, I'm not playing. It's like, no. And he went, bust that guitar. Nice. What, what do you want? And James was like, oh, go for the size hits. of a cow. Size, size of, of a cow. cow. Bang. And went, okay. And he just started playing size of a Wow, what a mensch. And then after 20 seconds, he stopped and stared at us. And I thought, I thought, no, he's going to say, no, he can fuck off. <laughs> but he didn't. He went, join in. <laughs> and so we sang, yeah, all sang size of a cow in this hotel room at sort of quarter to three in the morning. Ten minutes later, James and I walked down the street going, well, that was an unexpected evening, wasn't it? That was <laughs> never. That is great. It was really fun. Miles Hunt, what a hero. Yeah, he was a great. And, I, you know, sometimes I, I'm, you know, you bump into someone and you just find yourself just sort of, sort of feasting on them on. I don't know if you, like, a friend and I were emailing once we were talking about, like, going to YouTube concerts <laughs> where you just find yourself on your own at home. So you sort of pour a bottle of wine and you think, I think I'm going to watch Pulp at Glastonbury uh, or whatever. And, you, and just watching, you know, British bands on American yeah. chat shows and stuff like that. YouTube concerts. So I watched a lot of uh, Dougie... Anderson is good friends with um, Mark Morris, and I'd, I'd met him at Douglas Oh, yeah, the Blue then, Tones. Yeah, and, um, and I just found spent an evening just watching Blue Tones stuff on on YouTube. Have you really looked, Have you watched the stuff? He's he's now in Matt Berry's band, or he... Is he? Sometimes, yeah. Well... You know, Matt Berry tours around and does his... I've never met stuff. Matt Berry. He's, is he a regular collaborator with you? Or do you, do you uh, occasional, yeah. I like him very much. He's, he's the real deal. He's not someone who's putting all that on he's a bit like rich fulcher do you know him at all from the bush i sat next to him once on a read through for something a read through for the boat that rocked the richard oh right curtis yeah. film he read the um i guess what would have been the philip seymour hoffman part yes. or whatever and he was really he was really funny and i remember being flyered by him in the street once in edinburgh years before uh-huh. he did a show called my mum still thinks i'm a lawyer or something yeah really sort of full-on screaming kind but i had a th- thing about that i when i Went to that. I thought, oh, God, that's exciting. A big um, Richard Curtis thing. We'll read through. Maybe I'll get a part in it or whatever. That would be amazing. This is, what would this be, 10 years ago, maybe more? Something like that, yeah. And so I turn up at the Century Club on Shaftesbury Avenue. And then you get there and people are like ludicrously famous and it's a little bit hot. And if I'm nervous and it's a little bit hot, that's it. I'm sort of gone. Hello, Adam Buxton here. I'm just popping in to explain that at this point in the recording, 
was when it stopped when I was recording. I mentioned in the intro that there were some technical problems and this is the point at which they kicked in. Luckily, my trusty backup recorder was working, which enables me to play you this short section in which we exchanged Guy Ritchie-related stories. And then later on, I realized that the recording had stopped and, and I restarted. And you'll hear that bit towards the end when we talk about, what did we talk about? Parenting, things that annoy us. It's all good stuff. See you later. about um sherlock holmes disaster absolute disaster in which you were the waiter who had all his lines cut yeah absolute disaster yeah and didn't find out till the premiere that is, is that real that is true yeah uh i that's... should i should have worked it out on the day but right. yeah directed is... by guy ritchie correct yeah. i went to school with guy ritchie oh, okay when we were that little. must have been some really sort of really terrifying school somewhere it's a really it's... tough school on a council estate it was run by gangsters yeah the lessons were Doing people in mischief, yeah, mischief. Dealing with nonces, yeah, rhyming, a lot of rhyming. Yeah, no. The reality of it was, of course, that it was a boarding school, and Guy was one of the students. There. He came a little bit after everyone else, but when I was about eleven, I was quite friendly with him, mm-hmm. and he was like, a, he was a bit taller than yeah. Most people are taller than I am, but he was particularly tall. He yeah. cut a fine dash. I remember him as being this sort of country gent. Almost. It was, he had a style that most other 11-year-old boys didn't. Yeah. And he was really nice. And he taught me how to play cards. And, and he was good looking. And all the girls fancied him and stuff. And so I had fond memories of him. And it was, it was funny to me after years of having not kept up with him or seen him, really. Because we weren't, like, total best friends mm-hmm. or anything. But, you know, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels comes out. Directed by Guy Ritchie. I'm like, I wonder if that's my Guy that Ritchie. Two Guy Ritchie. Yeah. And sure enough, it is. I see some EPKs with him or whatever. It's like, yeah, that is Guy Ritchie. He hasn't changed that much, except now he had a scar. Dueling scar. Right. And then I saw him at the Comedy Awards, and me and Joe were doing TV stuff by that time, and we, we'd wangled our way onto the Comedy Awards somehow with someone else. But I'm wandering around afterwards. I, I see Guy Ritchie with a couple of big guys with him, you know, sort yeah. of looking fairly stern and... And I go up and say, hey, man, how are you doing? Do you remember me? And I, I said, hey, it's Adam Buxton. We, we went to school together, you know, because I, I didn't want to be the guy who sort of goes, remember me? And he's, yeah. he needs to be reminded. So I thought I'll make it easy for him. But he looked at me like completely blank. Yeah. Like, what the shit are you talking about? So I spelled it out for him. I was like, you remember you were at this school? And, and he said, uh, and he just shook his head. And he just said, oh, I went to a lot of schools. Went to a lot of schools. And then he, uh, <laughs> I was like, you what? It was a really weird experience. That is extraordinary. I mean, I felt as if it, it could be that he just didn't remember and he's had an exciting, colourful life since then and those memories have been replaced by other... But you're sort of like, yeah, you're, you're doing... Ones. You're doing a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you're wrecking his sort of backstory and sort of leading to go, not now, Buxton, not now. Yes, exactly. Talk, we'll talk about Sticky Biscuit later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't bring it up in front of the guys, for God's sake. <laughs> but how was he when you were doing the film? Well, I mean, I barely... Um, I barely... I mean, I just had, like, one day on it, and I just had one 
line, the the line I had was kept. Um, Robert Downey Jr. kept speaking over the end of it, and um, so I, I mean, I thought I was going to be fired before I'd even got, you know, done a few takes really because they. Just, Why was he talking over the end of it? Because he was so. Uh, well, he was having a. My line was to Jude Law, and his line was to Kelly Riley, and there were two concurrent conversations going, and he was sort of coming in over me, and he. We did, we did two or three takes where it happened, and nobody said anything. And then eventually Jude Law went, sorry, I really do think there's a bit of overlapping going on here. And then suddenly everyone seemed to assume it was a really full room, you know, there was, and suddenly everyone just seemed to sort of shrink from the room. I couldn't, just everyone sort of completely disappeared. And then a sort of sound guy appeared and went, um, yes, um, there's a bit of a problem, which is that you're talking over Robert. And I said, well, uh, um, yeah, okay, what do we get? I mean, just don't, can you, don't talk when he's talking. And I was going, well, I'm, starting the line and then he's yeah but you can't talk when he's I said do you want me to because maybe maybe you shouldn't say your line and I was going what and then you just pick it up on the single or something and he went I d- I d- you just can't talk when he's talking he's Robert and then yeah, walked he, off and then he's Iron Man and then he sorted it out actually he went like hey what's your name come over here let's run this a few times make sure the bits fit but then obviously by then it was didn't and I was went back sat in the trailer for few hours and then they were like we're doing the big master shot now the big wide shot and I was like oh you're not meaning for the big wide shot no no we don't need for that and you'll be fine <laughs> so clearly I've been dumped by them but I don't realize you know you're just sort of reading but I you know at the time I was on tour with Simon Munnery we were doing this show about Elizabeth and Raleigh that Stuart had written and I remember like being in the dressing room of the Havant Arts Centre repairing my own costume uh, stitching my own breeches back together or whatever and then got a call saying you know next Monday you're going to spend a day doing a movie and you think great you know and at the time yeah. you know it's a lovely lovely lift but yeah it was a kind of traumatic and then a mate of mine came to the yeah came to the premiere and I was like it should be now oh no no it's gone <laughs> it's like, and I was like no no it would have been it would have been there and it's you just, so I just humiliating it. yeah but at the time also there's so I think if you do lots of different things, there's so much sort of distance between when you make something and when it's on. You don't really feel involved in it anyway, really. Yeah. You've never really been that involved in it, even if you're sort of in it for a short time. It's really the people that are on there all yeah. the time. So you don't... It's hard to be too... And I just sort of found it funny that that was happening, I suppose. This is a warning which should be considered pressing. In this next bit there is something you may find distressing. You can hear the sound of someone eating. You can hear the sound of someone eating. You can hear the sound of someone eating. Someone eating. Someone eating. It's really not so bad. You can hardly hear it. But I know it makes some of you sad. And there are those of you who fear it. You don't like the sound of someone eating. You don't like the sound of someone eating. You don't like the sound of someone eating. Someone eating. Or drinking. Munch. No. Chomp. Yuck. Slurp. Arg. Num, 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 num. Crunch. Chew. Smack. No. Yuck. Skip ahead a little bit. If for you these sounds are gory, 60 seconds should be safe. But if not, I'm very sorry. So you in countryside, countryside? Yeah, we are. And is it lovely? It's really nice. I love it. I record the... Do you um, bus in or cycle into Norwich? Cycle in. Mm-hmm. And I just started uh, cycling with my son. My eldest son is 15. Mm-hmm. And uh, cycled in to town with him the other day for the first time um, my wife's very nervous she doesn't want the children cycling around there because she just thinks I'll get knocked off down the some country lane yeah yeah um, how old are your children eldest is eight 
Oh man. Yeah. How old's the youngest? Two. Whoa, so you're only just emerging from the tunnel. Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, we're going to have... I, no, I, oh, I forgot the number. I calculated once how many years we would spend having teenagers, and it was quite a long yeah, quite a long time. So there's all that to look forward to. But, mm. um, you know, there's lots of fun to be had, isn't there? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's have a you good were... motivator. Really good mo- motivator. Yeah. What's the bit of parenting wisdom that you like to impart to others? I think somebody told me that Robert Barthurst... Have you met mm-hmm. Robert Barthurst? Really very nice man in cold feet. Oh, yeah. He, um, he's he got quite a lot of children, and he said, I wish, I had, in retrospect, I wish I'd been able to treat the eldest the way I treated the youngest. Mm. As to be able to have that kind of... I mean, that's an impossible piece of advice, I suppose, because you really don't know what you're doing when you have your first one. I suppose you've just got to not take anything personally. That's, I think that's very hard. You know, everything that people are doing and saying, and there's the, you know, they're behaving that way out of some sort of necessity for it. It's not always sort of on you. Um, I guess maybe the good thing about having a larger family is that you don't, you just can't be quite so precious with each individual. And maybe that makes them less, I worry that I, I worry that I just put too much emotional weight onto the children just because I'm so yeah. needy. Right, right. You know yes. what I mean? And because I, I, I convey the sense that I had before I became a father that, I had this fantasy of what being a parent would be like, which was totally um, unhelpful, i.e. that they would just love me unconditionally yeah. and put up with all my shortcomings and ignore all the Well, the, the first things. of those must be true. Yeah, but then that doesn't last, you see. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a kind of motif of love, you hope, that continues where, yeah. with your family. But on top of it is just a load of interpersonal indifference often if they're yeah. you know it's like well you're just people at the end of the day and you may be the kind of person that they find a bit tedious <laughs> i suppose the thing is like you know you've just got to put some effort in sometimes and other times you've got to step back you? yeah Get it's hard well, well, i mean now they're entering the they're entering the phase where they where they are stepping back yeah and they're asserting their independence and now it often when you go into their room and say hey how's it going and how is school and stuff they shift around uncomfortably and you know they can't wait for you to leave. It's as if they've yeah, just yeah. committed a murder and you're a policeman. They just want to get back on their phones and start selling drugs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really annoying that you're like going, hey, should I get the Lego out of the attic again? No, they just want to carry on sexting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you ever worry about this world that you have, you yeah. know, because you've got no experience of living in a social media bubble no, exactly. when you so were that I, age. Well, like I'm, I'm writing a novel at the moment that is set. It's like a teacher getting really fed up with his, probably his job, more like the sort of school that he teaches in. And I have set it, I'm only like 20,000 words into it, but I've set it very deliberately when I was at school. So the teacher is the age that I am now in the book, but, the, but he is teaching at school at the age when I was at school because I thought I can't imagine plotting a story set in a school now when everybody has mobile phones and you email your teachers and stuff like that to me that seems completely unfathomable but that is the actual world that they will be going into the thing that i literally refuse to research yeah uh, in order to get something done that seems to me like a slightly frightening thing but we're a relatively screen free household actually how do you manage to enforce that that's uh, what you just my wife got up early one morning and unplugged the television and put it in the loft 
we hadn't had a television for years and then I bought one and then it turned out people were just watching it too much it's not, even, it's not what, even they're watching it too much it's the noise they make when you turn it off yeah 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 you're like you can't you've got to be able to deal with this going off eventually you know, yeah you can't so, stuck um, it in the attic and then does it come out when you want to watch it or does it come out on weekends or anything oh n- no well it eventually will come out it's going to come out when the clocks go forward or back or whatever it is that they do in the autumn now I've heard you talking about yourself as kind of an angry person in mm-hmm. the past do you still get angry about things in that same sort of way yeah I've got a very short temper so do I I think a lot of a lot of my stuff is all quite near the surface really and I, I got really short I get very cross what do you like when you lose it loud very loud very really because I mean you're, you're quite softly natural, spoken well yeah it's exhausting when it happens I'm, I'm quite softly spoken and um very loud and very i mean mainly it's with inanimate objects or or whatever i have um oh you lob things around or or just sort of strike them i've um (laughs) i took uh two broken printers to the tip the other day both of which we've moved house with but both of which were broken by me just how did you break them i will physically attack them so what was the problem? The uh, you were getting well, lines in your printout, whatever it would be, you know, yeah. just one of those things. It's taking out five or six bits of paper. What it should be doing, whatever, inanimate objects. And I suppose you know, I do have quite a short fuse with the children. I suppose sometimes you know, which is pathetic of me. But you're like, can you just do the thing that you know where you're contracted? Do the, to do do. the thing that you're. Yeah, there's a deal. <laughs> there's a deal here. You all sign those forms, and it is the daddy knows best. Sign the waiver. <laughs> now, eat your fucking broccoli. Uh, that sort of yeah, that's that sort of stuff. If the children are being difficult, I sort of think rather than thinking you're my child and you should do as I ask. What I'm going to do is imagine that you are my boss and that you're being completely unreasonable, and I'm going to be very good about it. And that is a way of putting pathetically. You think, well, if I've you know it's all right working when that guy was being a complete arsehole and I was sort of kind of you know very mellow about it. That's what I I can't I do that. <laughs> Home, you know, so um, yeah, trying to channel some of those things, but I do, yeah, I do get really. And what about with members of the public? That's where I come unglued sometimes, is with officials, particularly. I got very cross with a lady at Paddington Station recently. She was not letting people onto a particular train, there'd been some sort of thing. I was trying to get on a train with um, Pippa Evans and uh, Lloyd Langford, and the information said, desk said, yeah, those tickets are valid, and she just stood at the back and they're not valid. And then people were going, yeah, but there's been an accident, and so then now it's all moving. It's just policy. Right, have you spoken to the information desk? No, it's policy or whatever. It's got policy. Quite so sort of antsy. I once got really given a dressing down by my wife for being sarcastic to um, some train staff in Italy, which was probably completely, you know, I don't know to what extent I was able to convey my sarcasm, but she really, she was like, you just can't talk to people like that. But I got, I got really, really cross with someone that I thought was just being so deliberately unhelpful. And I said, I, I said, what is it? Fucking bring an idiot to work day? In Italian? <laughs> no, in English. So <laughs> the only person I could have been annoying would have been my, my own wife. And she right. Re- she really... Like, stop it. Stop it. Really. <laughs> yeah. Off on this platform. But you get annoyed with members of the public. So like a- yeah, by exactly what you just described, when people fall back on kind of official jargon or yeah, yeah. basically just say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. When it's yeah. like, well... That's just not true. There's loads of things you can do. You just can don't I, want can to. Can I talk to somebody more senior? Is yeah. there perhaps a supervisor or whatever like that? I remember once my mum telling me anyone? about being in a bank and trying to describe her situation to some like this young guy 
who's going, yeah, well, I can't understand why you'd need that sort of money right now, you know. And she went, can I talk to somebody older? <laughs> it doesn't have to be more senior than you. I just actually, what I'm saying will be understood by somebody who is older than you. <laughs> and he went and got someone older and it was all sorted. On Rye Lane, during the passport crisis, do you remember that massive backlog a few years ago? And I, I put like four passport applications through during a lunchtime. Uh-huh. And it took like an hour or whatever. And there's only three windows open. And as I left, an old lady went, good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, yeah, fair, fair enough. So you just took that one on the chin. You I didn't thought, go back and say, thought, sorry, what did you say? Sorry. Is it my hearing? Or yeah. did you just have hey, a pop? Hey, old woman. <laughs> what the fuck did you just say? I heard. I ain't afraid of you motherfuckers. <laughs> um, yeah, I do, yeah. All right, here's a list of things. Tell me how you feel about some of these. Okay. Being stuck in traffic. I'm all right about that sometimes. I'm all right about it as well. You sometimes, know, you, sometimes there's nothing you can do. Sometimes it's like a little holiday. Mm. And you just think, oh, fuck it. Just me in the car, got the radio on. Yeah, as long as you don't need to go for a pee. Bag of revels. Love it. Everyone's happy. When people chuck their rubbish out of the car window. Not good, not good. Really, no, 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 no. Not Littering good. in general. Not good. Have you ever had a confrontation? Ever told someone to pick something up? Uh, no, I haven't. But I've we tried actually, it. We I tried actually. it with some youths. Did you? Yeah. How did it go? Not well. Not well. No, they said they pay for someone to do that. And I was like, right. that's not how you're supposed to think about it. Yeah. Pick the stuff it's up. Not, what you're doing is not job creation. Yeah. It's laziness. When you hold the door open for someone and they don't say thank you. That does annoy me. Or don't acknowledge it in some way. And I'll tell you someone who did that to me once was uh, Yuri Geller in BBC Scotland downstairs. You held the door open for Yuri? Held the door open for Yuri Geller. You got nothing? Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Fuck you, Yuri Geller, yeah. you spoon Because before that, I was a really, like, a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it really, it just shows, it can turn. It can turn on a sixpence. <laughs> it can bend like a pre-bent spoon. <laughs> when people let their children misbehave in restaurants. I mean, that's not really yeah. fair, because children... I think, yeah, you have to sort of empathise. I, I agree. When people let their children walk up slides, demented. I cannot, no. When children walk up slides, and there's other children people, waiting to yeah. use them. Yeah, absolutely madness. Yeah. So, so frustrating. <laughs> when people hold a conversation in a doorway bad yeah yeah my children i i say quite often a doorway is never a place to stand still this is rule one there's about 20 rule ones and also slow walkers on, yep. on busy pavements yeah 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 that's a tough one sometimes well i have a wheelie suitcase and i've got a real problem with people with wheelie suitcases so that aren't I. purchase about it and I, mine's yeah. a four-wheeler so whenever i'm in a very crowded street or there's lots of people i can put it up so it's Four wheels, it can travel flat and upright and take up the littlest amount of space yeah. possible. But we're here near sort of King's Cross, and you know sometimes you've got to understand people have arrived somewhere they've never been before. Yeah, staring at maps on their phone and pulling this enormous thing around. Yeah, get really, really it's tough. Cross. In New York, there's like zero tolerance for that kind of thing. I went in New it? York with my brother twice in the noughties, and I remember us really like it was aimed at us, but we found it really funny. Like us being slightly unsure about that, you can turn left on red or whatever, and we were just like being slightly hesitant on a crossing a street, and the guy behind us went, "Welcome to the city." Now keep walking, and we <laughs> we thought it was really funny. 
It's such a sarcastic. Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers, so when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited squarespace.com slash Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there, so I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures, I uploaded a video, before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen The Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton. And I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom. And it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom? And you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Continue. Hey, welcome back, Podcats. That was Miles Jupp I was talking to there. I'm very grateful indeed to Miles for making the time to talk to me way back in 2017. I call them the good old days. And I'll be delving into my retro podcast cupboard maybe once or twice more before the end of the year. There's a few conversations there that should have seen the light of day before now, but didn't for... As I said in my introduction, various reasons. Technical, organizational, blah, 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 blah. Another recently recorded episode of the podcast with frontman of the band Travis and an old friend of mine, Fran Healy, will be available in a few days. We had a great conversation. I actually managed to see Fran and the rest of the band just in the sweet spot a few weeks back before everything started getting more Robert Lockdowny Jr. I was hosting an online Q&A with the band, even though I was in the same room with them, appropriately socially distanced, of course. And it was very good to see them all. I spent quite a bit of time hanging out with Travis back in the day, towards the end of the 90s and on into the beginning of the 2000s. If you're a regular podcast, you'll know that Dougie from Travis, the bass player, was a guest on this podcast. And it was great to catch up with Fran. There's a lot of juvenile laughing, smutty humour, reminiscing, some name dropping. And we revisited a kind of cataclysmic confrontation that we had. It was quite dramatic. Anyway, that's in the next episode of the podcast. I don't usually do trails. Because to be honest, I don't usually know who's coming up next. But this time I do. Anyway, look out for that. Um, But that's it for this week. I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. 
Thanks very much indeed to the people who helped me with this podcast. Seamus Murphy-Mitchell, who provides various forms of production support. Annika Meissen, who did some editing on this episode. Uh, Jack Bushell, who also did a bit of editing on this episode back in the day. Thanks to Acast for their continued support. And thanks very much indeed to you for downloading this and other episodes of this podcast and uh, enthusing about it to your friends, if that's what you do. Thanks. I love making the podcast. I feel very lucky to be able to do so. And that's thanks to you, in a way. I mean, not totally. I would carry on doing it even if it wasn't for you, probably. But still, it's nice to actually have people listening to it. That's the point. You know, shut up now. Go home and give dog a kiss. And maybe even my wife. Till next time, take all the best of the care. And remember, I love you.